0: Actually, we're going to read in verse chapter 10, then we're going to go into verse chapter 11. There we go. We're going to begin reading in chapter 10, verse 34. We'll go through chapter 11, uh, verse 2. Chapter 11, verse 2 from Acts chapter 10, verse 34. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom, and God's Word declares, Then Peter opened his mouth and said in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not uh, be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. Well, if you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapters 10 and 11, we will press on into our passage. Uh, We have probably this week and next week yet to really envelop all of the facets of this very powerful, important event in the history of Christendom which is the opening of the door of faith to the Gentiles, which means opening the door of faith to you and I. Uh, And so um, a very powerful time, a very opportunistic time for us to really look at some of the issues that we're still being confronted with today, Uh, and that actually are being uh, some of the issues that divide churches today. And we want to investigate some of those along the way. We aren't going to get to too many of them today today. Um, but we really want to look at our role and the role of uh, particularly the leaders of not just the church but also the home in respect to the gospel. How dependent are we on their uh, completing their mission? We have spent some time looking at God's preparations for this very important event. He had to prepare... Peter to overcome his prejudices that have been ingrained in him all of his life. That God has a bigger plan than just reaching the people of Israel with the gospel. He has a bigger field in mind. Christ died for more than just Israel. And so God had to prepare Peter to overcome that area of prejudice, where he um, kept to his social circles, if you will. We already saw it, really, um, in Jerusalem earlier, didn't we? Where he kept to his social circles, and, and that's who heard the gospel, were those that, that, uh, he, that was familiar with him, uh, or that he was familiar with them. And then we have the introduction of some Greek-speaking Jews and their opening up of the gospel into other synagogues that really the apostles didn't have a lot of contact with. We then saw among also the seven, uh, whom we describe as deacons now, but the Bible just calls them the seven. Um, these seven men, uh, of course Stephen, we have his sermon in martyrdom. And then we looked at Philip and his willingness to really be the first to start the process of obeying God's command to get the gospel out of Jerusalem. Uh, and we find him going into Samaria, we find him engaging Ethiopian, eunuch, but again, these are dealing with those who have some connection to Israel. And so it was certainly permissible, these are some who had come to, to Judaism, have been converted to it, um, or were half Jewish. And so there was a Somewhat of a willingness to permit that. Uh, but now God is going to uh, prod them over the edge. Uh, that it's time to just destroy these barriers, these prejudices that limit the gospel. And it's time to take it to everyone. So he had to prepare Peter. He also prepared Cornelius. That Cornelius was a man who uh, wanted to please God. Wanted to know... The one true and living God. He wasn't uh, following after the paganism of his people, the Romans. He wasn't following after all their gods. He was serving the one true and living God. He knew that it was connected to the Jews, um, but he hadn't become a Jew. But he was certainly had a good reputation there. This was a man who was doing all the right things and not really fully realizing why or if it was really enough. Those were questions that were in his mind. Um, but it says he was a devout man. He gave alms to the poor. He was fasting and praying. I mean, this is a man that wanted to know the truth. And God prepares the way by sending him also a servant, an angel, to say, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to go off. You're going to find this guy. His name is Simon uh, Peter. You're going to find him in Joppa down there in the house of Simon the Tanner. And he'll tell you what to do. He'll open up and answer the issues that are on your mind. Uh, I think it's wonderful that we have individuals like Cornelius who want to know the truth. They want to know. What is it? What is it that God wants? Uh, They're doing all the right things from the religious perspective, but that doesn't mean they have a relationship with God. They're going in, they're going to church, they're doing Uh, good deeds, they're doing, uh, they're giving, they're doing all these kinds of things, they're praying, they're, 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 uh, involved in all of this activity like Cornelius, but they still have an emptiness about them. And many of those that you encounter that, that you want to share the gospel with them, they say, oh, I tried that, it didn't work for me. There are people like Cornelius, who tried all the activity, but no relationship with God in the midst of it. Well, Cornelius was one that was going to keep seeking after God, and God uh, heard that. God saw his efforts and the heart behind it, and God comes and says, you need to seek out this one Simon Peter. He'll tell you what is missing, what is it that you're lacking in your life. And so God had to prepare Cornelius, and we find that it wasn't just Cornelius that was prepared, and this is going to come into play today, um, but all Cornelius' household, because he's going to communicate this uh, contact that God has had with him. He is going to send uh, some of his servants. He's going to send uh, one of his uh, soldiers down there. He's a centurion, which means that he has a responsibility for a minimum of 100 soldiers. Um, And uh, it was a pretty high-ranking individual. So he is... Shared this information and he has gathered together his whole household. We're going to describe a little bit of what that means. And so he has been obedient to this heavenly encounter and he is going to follow through with it. He's going to send down to Joppa. He's going to communicate to his house. By the time Peter finally gets there, a day, uh, another, uh traveling, a day to send, uh, I'm sorry, a day to send them, a day to travel, uh, they spend the night there in Joppa, and they come back up, and so it's been a few days, and uh, he's got all of his family, his household, all of his servants, all of them are there gathered together, uh, ready to hear what Simon has to say. And of course, their first reaction is that Simon must be the guy, and they want to worship him. They bow down before him, confusing the servant of God with the son of God. Peter, of course, immediately stops that. We've studied that and uh, says, "No, I'm just a man, um, and uh, it's really not right for me to be here from my the way I was raised. But here I am. I've been told in my life never to do this, but here I am because God has superseded everything I've been told in the past. He has that authority in my life. We come now to Peter's sermon." where he is speaking to Cornelius with all things prepared. So uh, Peter's prepared. Cornelius' his household is prepared. And Peter has done one other thing. He has taken witnesses with him. He has taken a group of six men with him to uh, either witness what is about to happen, maybe he presaged a little bit of what God's about to do, Um to encourage and support uh, whatever is going to occur. Um, but he's taking these six men with him. And these are Jewish men who are going to participate with, with Peter in this uh, very dramatic event of going to a centurion's house with the expectation that you're going to not just meet with them, but eat with them and probably spend the night with them in, the, in that household would be the expectation and the preparation. So Peter arrives having now heard the account of Cornelius and we come to verse 34 and we see again the pressing point that we've studied in the past that God shows no partiality. That God wants all the nations to come to him and that Christ died for all men. That, that when God says, whosoever will, he means whosoever will. And does not limit that term. That when God comes to say be the Savior of the world, that it is not just the world of the elect, or just the world of Israel, but the world, all the nations. In fact, in every nation, verse 35, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That aspect of coming to God on God's terms and not your terms. This is what it means to fear the Lord and to work righteousness. Now I'm going to come to God on his terms and what is the first command of God to the sinner and that is to bend your knee before Christ as your Savior and Lord to receive his gift of salvation, recognize our own sinfulness and inadequacy to meet the requirements that God has for us. And so Peter wants to share his illumination, that God has demonstrated to him this openness of the gospel for all men and for all kinds of men. and We find uh, that he has to preface his sermon by really sharing this wondrous truth that God, that Jesus Christ, is Lord of all, in verse 36. Yes, Was He sent among the children of Israel? Certainly. Was He born in Israel as a Jew? Yes. Was He raised according to the law? Yes. All those things are true. But He was sent uh, to Israel as the son of David, as the root of Jesse, um, as the Lion of Judah? Certainly. But He was there not just for them, but for all men. Because He who came to Israel was rejected by Israel that we might be grafted in. And so we find that he is, in fact, Lord of all. And we want to now look at how that impacts Cornelius and his household, that aspect of the message. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, would we thank you for your love for us, for the opportunity again to look in your word, we pray that you might guide and direct our time in it, that it might be uh, directed by your Spirit and be to your praise. And Lord, that you might work in us, uh, that your Spirit might have liberty to guide us in your truth, to convict us of our sin, and to uh, encourage us in our walk with you. And Lord, we do thank you for his willingness to do so and for uh, his presence here. And Lord, we also thank you for your word and its sureness and its authority. We can uh, have a foundation to bring a stability in our life that we can know and not just guess or hope uh, wishfully, but rather that we can know and we can hope with confidence in all that it teaches for us. So we thank you for it, and we pray for this time we spend spent in it, that it might be to your praise, honor, and glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to press on now. That's kind of where we've been, and now we're getting into uh, the response of Cornelius' household to this message. Uh, the message is culminated... Uh, having given an account of the fact that they were witnesses, and this is a very going to be an important part of what we want to talk about today, um, where Peter says, we are the witnesses, we saw Jesus, we met with him, you didn't. And that's kind of important because um, this is what their task was, was to communicate everything they saw. Uh, not only to write it down in our Gospels and, and to record it, but to share it with everyone, not only in Jerusalem, not just in Judea and Samaria, but the uttermost parts of the world. That this was to be disseminated in this first generation of the church. It fell on their shoulders to make sure that this Jesus whom they saw whom they heard, who they watched die on a cross, who they met having raised from the dead, that they communicated widely and broadly that it's not just an isolated thing that that just happened in in Judea, but that it is something that impacts all the world. It is necessary that these first witnesses, these eyewitnesses, um, be spread all over, that this word, this message, gets out quickly in the first generation. And... Peter recognized that they couldn't hold back because of their prejudices from doing exactly what God called them to do. It had to be done, it couldn't be put off, delayed, it could not be fall on the next generation. Well, they'll get the job finished. No, it fell on them who were the witnesses who saw Christ, spoke with him, ate with him, both prior to his death and after his resurrection. That they needed to share this testimony to. Both the people of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and here we find Peter sharing really essentially the exact same message that he spoke on Pentecost to the Jews. He's going to speak on this day to Cornelius and his household, essentially to the representation represent, representatives of the Gentiles. And that statement is is that they killed him. Who's they? They are the Jews, the Israel of God, as well as the Romans uh, through uh, Pontius Pilate. Uh, this is the one. They killed him, hanging on a tree. And at the end of verse 39, verse 40, him, this same one, killed by this they. God raised up. The crucifixion was the work of men. perpetrated against the Holy One. The resurrection was the work of God, whereby He conquered sin and death for all men. And so this is one that God raised up on the third day and showed Him openly. Um, And again, verse 41 is the necessity of this uh, witness that we must share, that not everyone saw Jesus. Not everyone saw him after the resurrection. He did not, he showed himself openly. He wasn't hiding and going out just at night. Um, it, but it wasn't within the context of his mission to show himself to everyone. And we have the idea somewhere along the line that, well, you know, if Jesus met Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, then he should come and do that to me as well. But we know from Scripture that that is not the strategy of God. The strategy of God, in fact, is that the church will go forth to be the witnesses of Christ. And that we have followed that through the Gospels. We've seen that throughout the book of Acts, that this is God's strategy. That those who are very small and weak in their faith were the ones who tested God and says, Until I see him, I will not believe. One of the twelve were like that, were they not? Until I see him, I won't believe. And I want to remind you that if you want to use those words of Thomas, that you must also carry the weight of Christ's rebuke. And Christ's rebuke is, Thomas, you had to see to believe? And then he says, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. You want the blessing of God, you're not going to demand of God to see, but rather by faith accept and trust the witnesses that he did present himself to. Uh, And again, we're not talking about 11 men or 10 men, uh, but hundreds that he ate and drank with, that he spoke with and met with and walked with, that he engaged with, uh, not just for moments, but for hours. They performed miracles for that he challenged and rebuked and corrected and instructed. And then finally gave them their marching orders to preach that message of his work to all people. So all of this so far, while it has recounted the work of Christ before Cornelius, going all the way back to Christ's teaching ministry, all the way through the resurrection, and the, but just prior to the ascension and the engagement of, of between Christ and his witnesses there, um, we find that, Paul, that Peter has shared the story of Christ in the context of his personal experience. But he hasn't yet shared... Well, how do I tap into that? I wasn't there. I wasn't in Galilee. I wasn't there in Judea. I wasn't there in Jerusalem. I I wasn't at Golgotha. I didn't see him die on the cross. I wasn't there that Sunday morning that he rose from the dead. I wasn't around during those days that he walked on the earth and spoke and ate and drank with the witnesses. I didn't witness any of that. What does it require of me? What is this work of Christ that, that you've witnessed, but I have not? What does it require of me? And we finally get down to, within Peter's message, and whether he intended to speak longer than this or not, I'm not sure, because he's kind of uh, interrupted by a response. That's kind of exciting, to be interrupted by a response. Verse 43 is the very simple declaration. You didn't see him. You didn't hear him, but you are now confirmed with the message of Christ. And here's what's required of you. Verse 43 To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. That's it. Whoever believes in him, this one, this Jesus, who came and as as a Jewish child in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and, and lived this perfect life and, and taught and performed these miracles and was crucified and buried and rose again the third day and walked and talked among the people for the, that season before his ascension, that if you believe in that name, this one Jesus, and all that he is and and what he has done, that you will have, you'll receive passively the remission, the removal of your sins. Why do I say it's a passive verb? You're going to receive something from God. That getting rid of sin isn't your job. You cannot accomplish it. No matter how good you try to be, no matter how many prayers you try to pray, no matter how much uh, religious activity you were involved in, Cornelius had all those bases covered. He was doing all those things. We would consider him a great member of our church if he were doing all those things, right? Do you want to go back and review them? What he was doing it Uh, verse 22 of chapter 10. A just man who feared God had a good reputation among the nation of the Jews uh, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. That's what his servants described him. This is a man who wanted to get things right with God. But he wasn't yet. In a relationship with God. He still had sin standing between him and God. And none of those activities could resolve that issue. But God says, I'm paying attention to your heart. That you want to be right with me. So I'm going to send you this agent, this witness, this ambassador. And you're going to listen to whatever he tells you. And so when Peter gets down to this and says, this one that we have all the prophets talking about, that we are witnesses of all of his life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Um, This one is the one that you must believe in, and from him you will receive the remission of sins. That is so wonderful. I don't have to work to get rid of my sin. Christ has already done the work to remove my sin. It is now time for me to simply accept that work for me. That I'm no longer, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop praying, I'm going to stop going to church, I'm going to stop doing any of those things, but now I'm not trying to do any of that to get rid of sin. I'm not getting baptized to wash away sin. That's complete error. And if that were, if that could be done, brethren, if that could be done, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. If you could wash away sin with baptismal waters, He didn't have to die. Right? So, um, all that activity is important, but none of those activities take away sin. And this has been the error that has crept into the church over the millennia that the Re- Reformers uh, reacted against, and that was that Christianity started teaching, well, if you do this, you get rid of sin. If you do this, you get rid of some of your sin. you do this, you get rid of some of your sin. And if you do this, you get rid of some of your sin. And none of those were true. There's only one way to remove sin. And it's something that has to happen to you, not something you do. Isn't that amazing? You have to receive it. It has to be done for you. You're the passive one. You're the acceptor. You're the one that's not working to attain it, but simply sitting back and accepting it. And what the gospel essential is, is us acknowledging that I can't do anything for myself in this area. I have to just open my arms and accept what God has done for me in Christ Jesus and let Him remove my sin. and Stop trying to do it myself. The guilt is cared for. The judgment is taken away. Because my sin has been removed. Separated from me, the Bible says, and, and as Bill in Sunday school, the east is from the west. You can't meet those two. That's how far you're separated from your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll never be attached again. And so this is the message that Peter preaches. And, and he says, this is what all boils down to is that he, Christ did all the work. Do you notice how much of his sermon is about Jesus? Jesus did this, Jesus did this, this is who he is, this is what he's done, this is our witness of him, not of us, but of him. This is what we saw him and heard him and, 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 and touched him, this is, this is who he is, what he's accomplished. What do you need to do? Believe him, believe in that name, and then he will do the work for you. And not believe in terms of, well, yeah, I believe that that historically happened, but rather that he is who he says he is, his God incarnate. That he did what he did, and that is to die for your sin. And that he rose conquering sin and death. That I don't just believe that those were historical events, that's not the word belief here. But that I'm really pouring myself into it, I'm surrendering myself to it. How much more Peter might have wanted to say, we're not sure, um, Sometimes my messages are cut shorter than I thought, and I didn't quite get to all my material. Um, I always got next week. Uh, so I don't, by the way. One of these days I won't have a next week. That'll be exciting, won't it? His message is cut short, or at least comes to a dramatic and quick conclusion by the response. He doesn't have an altar call. We don't sing just as I am 14 times. We don't have an emotional appeal. There's nothing really emotional in any of this. He's just laid out the facts. Here's the facts. And he gives one single statement of what you need to do. That's it. These people are ready. They didn't pray a certain prayer. He didn't put it up on the board and say, okay, all of you want to accept Christ, pray this prayer. Raise your hand. Uh, go to the back and talk to... No, none of that happened. Right there in that house, sitting in wherever they were lounging around, wherever they were all meeting and, and uh, sitting and, and reclining more often than not. Um, things started happening. says that they received the Holy Spirit. I say, well, how did they know they received the Holy Spirit? Well, they started doing exactly what was happening in Acts chapter 2 among the Jewish people. And this was critical, not for them, but for Peter and his witnesses and later on the Jerusalem council and the The Pharisees that had come to Christ in the early church in in their Jerusalem it was critical that it happened exactly the same now the sign gifts of speaking in tongues that we're going to see here uh, speaking in other languages speaking in tongues is not gibberish it's other languages and you can imagine what language they started speaking in who's visiting them a bunch of Jews seven of them Peter and six others. What languages do they know that most Gentiles don't know? Hebrew. <laughs> Could you imagine this? You're Peter and you're preaching and you get down to one statement. And all of a sudden people start talking to you in Hebrew. What were they saying? It says that, that they, they they heard them speak with tongues. That's languages. I don't know why we keep using the word tongues, but it's languages. Verse 46. And they heard them speak with languages. Who heard them? Peter and his six friends heard them speak in languages. Well, what languages? Well, languages we knew that they didn't. What were they saying? They were magnifying God. God. And he immediately recognized that this is exactly what happened uh, a few months ago over there in Jerusalem. This is precisely what we experienced there. There is no difference. God is not partial. He gave the Holy Spirit to Jewish believers, He's given the Holy Spirit to Gentile believers. The sign gift wasn't for the Gentiles. They knew they had received the Holy Spirit. They knew that they had trusted in Christ as their Savior, Lord. The the tongue speaking wasn't for their benefit. The tongue speaking was for the benefit of Peter and his six friends. So they could go back to Jerusalem and tell all the other Jews back there that, listen, the Gentiles, they get saved. Jesus died for them. They can accept him too. And here's the proof. They manifested the Holy Spirit the same way we did back there in Acts chapter 2. Now, does that mean that everyone who accepts Christ as their Savior has to speak in tongues? No. sign gifts aren't necessary. This wasn't done for the benefit of Cornelius, but for really the benefit of the Jewish communities we're going to see more in a couple of weeks. But it says that, the again, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And we find uh, a group conversion. And this is the, really the not the first time we've seen this because we've seen it already, right? We've seen uh, thousands come to know Christ at once. Uh, that uh, at Acts chapter 2, we saw it at Pentecost. We've seen it on several other occasions where we have whole groups coming to Christ. And here in this household... It says that all who heard the word received the Holy Spirit. Why? Is it just the hearing? No, we know from God's word. Uh, This is a narrative, and so he's not going to explain every step. But uh, that Paul tells us that it's not hearing only, but believing, that uh, we hear, we accept, and uh, trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord. And so all of those who heard, believed, believed, And in believing, they receive the Holy Spirit just as they receive the removal of sin. That is the one-two punch, the getting rid of the negative and adding this positive. You're removing sin. At the same time, you're bringing in someone holy into your life. Spirit of God. And as this happens... Uh, we are confronted now with, well, who all were, was listening? How many Gentiles got saved right here and we're never told? They're never numbered. But we know that they're described as Cornelius' household. Now, why has this gotten us into trouble historically in Christianity? Because people have interjected some information in here that we're not given. They've interjected that there were babies there that got saved and spoke of the Holy Spirit too. That somehow, by being a godly parent who accepted Christ as Savior, that all of Cornelius' children got saved too. Do you see anywhere that there are any designation of children? They're not in the text. But we've interjected them, and and from Reformed Baptists to Reformed everybody, uh, the uh, models who are also... Uh, hold this position that if you're a christian that somehow your children have kind of this shoe in and you just identify them as babies that they belong to god and that somehow they got this inside track on salvation and that they're going to be children of god as well um and of course the old adage that old-time baptists used to have is that god has no great grand, or has no grandchildren god has no grandchildren he only has children what does that mean? That you have to make that choice yourself, whether you've been raised in a Christian home or not. The fact is that what, both here and in Philippi, um, in the city of Philippi, we have two accounts. Lydia, it says Lydia and her household believed. And we also have the Philippian jailer. It says the Philippian jailer and his household. And so this idea of a household coming to Christ together. That Cornelius and all that were attached to him, which is much more than just his immediate family. Uh, in fact, it's very possible that his immediate family wasn't even there. If he, depending upon how long his assignment was to be there as a centurion, his family may not have even accompanied him there. They may well have been there. I can't account for it either way. But the household would have included All the servants, it would have included the men that he was under, certainly his officers, and they would have all been there. He wanted everyone to hear, and he invited them in. Here's my here's the people of influence in my that I have influence over in my life, in my home. And he gathers them all together, and it says, Those who heard believed. And the Spirit comes upon them. And all of them, it says, are gonna be uh, baptized. Why? Because they receive the Spirit just as we have. So not only are they going to participate in receiving the Holy Spirit, they're going to be immediately baptized uh, to be identified with Christ very publicly. Is it critical that our homes be led by Christian men? Yes. Is it necessary for our salvation? No. Is it beneficial? Oh, yes. Do children in Christian homes have greater access to Christ? Is it easier for them to come to Christ? I would say yes. Does it mean that they automatically will? No. Does it mean that somehow they have kind of a, uh, don't have to acknowledge as much sin? No. They're just as sinful. We are carrying the responsibility as men in the household over our children to make sure they hear what Cornelius' household heard. The gospel. That having heard it, they have opportunity to believe. Not that I am going to for, you know, I'm not going to take them down there as an infant and baptize them to make them a Christian. It just doesn't work that way. Although that got muddied into Christianity over the centuries. Again, because we confused a work of man with the work of Jesus Christ. That somehow this takes away sin and it cannot. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can take away your sin. But here Cornelius leads his household the way a man needs to lead his household. Peter is the rises up as the man of God that we've sung about. And he rises up to do what God calls him to do, override his prejudices and get this message to the people who need to hear it. Cornelius does his part. And that is he gathers all those he cares about. And he, all those that are under his influence. All those that he has uh, any authority over. And that's pretty big. That's a big group. Um, don't be confused. This, this Caesarea by the sea, this was a large contingency of people Peter is talking to. All the people he had influence over, he wanted to gather them around so that they could hear what he was anxious to hear, couldn't wait to hear. But we only know that Cornelius was the devout man. We're not told anything about all the other people that are in that house we're not told anything about all his soldiers. We're not told anything about all his servants. We're not told anything about his family members. There's only one godly person in that house that we know about. And it's Cornelius. But by the time Peter gets there, he has gotten the entire household worked up about this. <laughs> He had this visitor he, he's got to, he's got to send down to this for this guy down there. We don't know anything about Simon, but he's coming and, and he's going to be right where this heavenly encounter tells him where he's going to be. they're going to show up with him and everyone's charged up about it. but as far as we know, this has all been generated not by anyone else's interest in the things of God except for one man. He said, I fear God. And I want to know, what is it, Lord? What is it, Lord, that you want from me? And he gathers around him all those that he had some influence in their life, some authority, and he wants them all to hear it with him. And God brings a man who has overcome all of his prejudices and a man who wants to know what God wants And he brings them together, not in private. And I want to share that this is real important because uh, private conversions are horrible. You know why? It's because they guard your pride. Cornelius could have easily gone to Peter, heard the whole thing, and said, okay, I'm going to accept Christ here, and and deal with this, and humble myself here with you, uh, so that when I go out there, I'll be a Christian, and now we can share it to all the people that I care about. Um, That's not what Cornelius does. Cornelius is going to hear the message for the first time at the same time all of his loved ones are. And he's going to humble himself to that message right with them. Same thing with Lydia, same thing with with the Philippian jailer, they're going to fall on their face before God in front of everybody. They're going to humble themselves before, and he's already done that, right? Peter walks in the room, all right? You're sitting there. There's, let's just say there are some children there. Here's dad. You know him as a a royal, a, 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 a very high official in the military. Here you are as an enlisted man. And there's your general, you're sitting there as a servant. There's your master. This is the guy who, you. he says anything in that house and 14 people jump at once. And here comes this fisherman from Galilee who comes strutting in there with six guys and what does your master do? What does your father do? What does your husband do? What does your general do? He runs over and drops on his face in front of this man To worship him. The man has to correct him. Right there in front of me. No, no, no. I'm just a man. Stand up. But I'm here to tell you a message. And this one is that willing to humble himself. Because he wants to know. What is it Lord? And he doesn't care how humiliating it is. If he can find the truth. And this gentleman is what a man of God is is a one who doesn't have to guard his pride anywhere in his life. He is willing to humble himself before the Lord in front of anyone and everyone. And these are the kinds of conversions that we just aren't seeing in our day, in our age, and I'm convinced because in our declaration of our message, we are trying to give people a way to protect their pride while still accepting Christ, and you cannot be done. Because your pride is the one thing that keeps you from Christ. It is the issue that prevents men from accepting Christ as our Savior. Anyone. And we have tried to couch the gospel in a manner that allows you to keep your pride while still accepting Jesus, and it's a lie. Cornelius is ready to accept the message that Simon shares with him, and he does do it at the same time and in the same way in front of everybody else. Because this is just too critically important to worry about how I conduct myself in front of my soldiers in front of my servants, in front of my family. Do you really think that they're going to look down on Cornelius from this day forward? (laughs) No. Because the Bible says if you'll humble yourself, God will exalt you. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all, Jesus Christ says. Humble yourself. And let Christ lift you up. Unfortunately, in our day and age, for men, it's the other way around. Christ has to humble you, and then you're always trying to lift yourself up. God calls us to humble ourselves before Him. And and these household conversions, I think, are critical that dad is accepting Christ. Um, The master is accepting Christ. This uh, government officials accepting Christ uh, openly in front of everyone, that they are seeing the brokenness and the and the trust, and they see what it means, and they say, "If this one, who is a devout man who has this wonderful reputation, if this one must fall on his face before God, then certainly I must. If this is what he must ha- conduct himself for to to come in a right relationship with God, if he recognizes his sinfulness, then." S- then certainly he's the one that I look up to. He's one that I, that I applaud. He's the one that I try to emulate. He's the one that I'm trying to follow. He's the one with the great reputation, with all the authority. And if he must do this, certainly I must. This is not about bringing babies to Christ. This is about bringing those who can understand what just happened and have heard the same message to respond by same faith and humble themselves as you have. And if we really want to lead our families in Christ, to Christ, and then in Christ, then we must continually perpetrate the same humility before them. That we are servants of the one true and living God. That I do this because God commands me to do this. That I have no right to challenge anything in this book based upon my personal interests. That I like or dislike it is irrelevant. I must do it because Christ has done it all for me. That I'm depending upon not my strength, but He, the Spirit within me. And this is what will bring families to Christ. This is what will bring all those that you have influence over to Christ is that when you are publicly willing to Humble ourselves. But no, we walk around trying to guard and cherish our pride and our arrogance and our standing. And and what will they think about me? The truly committed man of God considers only one. And he says, what does God think of me? What does God think of me? Cornelius, the one in the whole group, that God sent the angelic vision. The one in the whole group that was had the testimony, had the. If if anyone in that group, they would have picked out and says, "Oh, he's already good with God." It would have been Cornelius. This is the one that led all the rest to humble himself, and God blessed him. God filled him with His Spirit. He also humbled himself and was baptized by Peter right there. I bet you he was at the front of (laughs) the line. That's a humbling act. And this is how families come to Christ. Not by force or collusion. Not by us getting them wet with holy water. It's not by any work of ours. It's simply by us coming into right relationship with God and then watching it happen. And recognizing that if this one I look up to so much must humble himself before God and obey him, so should I. But I want you to understand that just because they've seen you do all that does not necessitate that they will respond that way. The fact is, they have their own will and they have their own pride. And yes, some may look down on you, despise you for your humbling of yourself, be embarrassed by it, be ashamed of it, think you're weak. But that's really not them rejecting you. That's them rebelling against God. That they are too good to do those kinds of things. And in their self-importance, they could very easily walk away from that which you have surrendered yourself to. So this is not a guarantee that a family will come to Christ in being led in faith in such a manner by a man of God. But it sure gives them access to that message. And that's all Cornelius provided for them. He said, here's my testimony. I want you to come. You're going to hear what I hear. And I'm going to respond. How you respond is up to you. And what we find is that everyone was ready to respond. And everyone who heard it with understanding received it. And received the same wonderful blessing. A sign gift, not for them. They knew that they were trusting in Christ. They knew that this one, whom Peter declared Jesus was their Savior, the speaking in tongues was for the benefit of the seven who came from Joppa. They followed as God commanded in the waters of baptism. And then it concludes in verse 48 at the end of the verse. Something we kind of miss sometimes in understanding how Peter took to heart the command of Christ. Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Why? Because there's work to be done. He's got a whole household of Gentiles who know very little of God's Word. And Peter stays with them a few days, and these 7-6, and you can imagine the focus and the attention of this time when Peter recalls his commands of his Lord, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Peter's going to take some time with this group and make sure they're, they're at least initiated into the teaching of Christ that hopefully will set a pattern for the rest of their days. And for these days, though, these seven godly men are going to invest themselves living and eating and and with these Gentiles and so it is no wonder that by the time we come and get to chapter 11 the word has already gone ahead that did you hear it happened in Caesarea? did you hear what happened Peter and he went over to Cornelius the centurion's house a Roman soldier oh the word has already gotten to Jerusalem way ahead of Peter. But in Peter's courage, he's ready to contend. So we see here not an instruction manual for us for what we should do to our children to guarantee their salvation, that we should baptize them and give them Christian names and that that's how it happens, but rather what we see is an instruction of being a man of God and rising up. Of being willing to take those that we say we care about and expose them to the same message that we needed and still need. Knowing that they have to accept or reject it themselves. I am confident that Peter would not have baptized any who did not receive the Holy Spirit. I'm further confident that over the few days that he was there, others probably came to Christ, in addition to those that did that first day. We want the gospel to go forth, there's no doubt. And it requires something of us. And that is to humble ourselves and to seek their welfare no matter what might be required of us before them. Peter had to humble himself, walk away from all of his Judaism and walk into the house of a Gentile and not just meet in the courtyard with them. He lived with them for a while walk away from all that and humble himself before the command of God to be a witness of Jesus Christ to all men. Cornelius, a man of authority, humbled himself before this one. And I am ready to worship the messenger. And Peter says, no, don't do that. Worship the one I speak of, Jesus Christ. And there's no doubt that Cornelius did that. Both of these men give us a wonderful picture of what God desires of us, particularly of those in leadership, within families, which is husbands, parents, that we simply humble ourselves before God and expose our family to the truth of God's word. When we have opportunity. But we cannot force salvation on anyone. No matter how much you love your children, you cannot make them believers because you have made them pray a certain prayer. They must hear the message and by faith accept it, humbling their little hearts to Christ just as we have had to humble ours to him. I believe God honors homes where there are men who are willing to say, I am a servant of God. And I will do my duty. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the testimony of these two men. And Lord, we have interjected a lot of weird ideas into a passage like this that just aren't there. Forgive us of that and guard us from it, whether it be from one extreme to the other, but that we might have the balance that your word presents us. And Lord, we also pray that you might raise up a heart within us to carry out your commands. We know that the command to be a witness of Christ isn't just for men for all who trust in you. We know that not only men have authority and influence over others, but that every believer is called to seek to be that influence over those that you brought into our life and to do so for Christ. Lord, forgive us of our pride. We know that it would keep us from you. if we hadn't humbled ourselves and recognized ourselves as sinners, we would not be in a relationship with you. We would not be able to pray to you today. And that similarly, if we hold on to our pride, that it often disqualifies us from your service and injures our relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you might humble us if we choose not to humble ourselves. That we might seek your face. Walk in your ways, then we might see others come to know you as Savior and Lord, love you and serve you. Lord, help us. For everything in the world says to elevate ourselves, to love ourselves, to esteem ourselves, to Be proud of ourselves. We know that this is error. This is sin, and this keeps us from you. Lord, help us to know your truth and to walk in it. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.